Well, hello everybody. These, these are indeed extraordinary times, with the COVID-19 pandemic prompting the Conservative government to tear up manifesto commitments and spend vast amounts of public money just to keep the economy from crashing. The nation is clapping and lauding low-paid key workers, from nurses to people working in care homes, cleaners to bus drivers. And unions are not only putting on members, but alongside the Labour Party, getting public support for championing workers' rights as the lockdown is unlocked. Against this unexpected backdrop, we are here to explore Andrew Brady's fresh and trenchant analysis of relations between union leaders and key figures in Labour governments in the 70s, 90s and the early new millennium in shaping employment law. Andrew Brady, who now leads on media and policy for Unite the Union in Scotland, maps it all out in his book, Unions and Employment in a Market Economy, Strategy, Influence and Power in Contemporary Britain, which he is here to discuss with us this evening. Andrew worked as a researcher for the Transport and General Workers Union before starting the PhD at Strathclyde University, which is the basis of his book. It includes candid interviews with key players, which have enabled Andrew to achieve a long overdue re-evaluation of a complex but vital relationship with perhaps lessons for the future. He achieved a long overdue, sorry, he, he was, he said, motivated by trying to fuse together his experience at work with academic research. He worked in Unite's political department during the 2010 general election. Also joining us this evening are two men who were steeped in relations between unions and the Labour Party over the period Andrew explores. First, Tom Wilson. Hello, Tom. Who, before heading up Union Learn at the TUC for many years, worked for the GMB and higher education unions and as trade union liaison officer for the Labour Party in the mid 80s. Sir Ian McCartney was at the sharp end of Union Labour Party relations for decades. From 1992 to 2007, he was Shadow Minister of State, Minister of State, and then Cabinet Minister, leading the Labour government's work on employment. Right. So now, over to Andrew Brady to get things started. Andrew. Thank you very much, Helen, for those kind remarks, and to my other guest participants, and to all those who are joining tonight's webinar. I greatly appreciate it. I think it's really important for me to say at the outset that I do hope that you, your loved ones and families, are safe and well at this very difficult time. Now, as Helen said, I was working for the Transport and General Workers Union as a political researcher and started my PhD journey. And at that time, in around 2007, I was motivated by trying to answer several key questions. Why was trade union density hovering around 30% and collective bargaining coverage at 35%? And why did this so vividly contrast with 1979 when one in two workers were members of a trade union and where around 80% of all workers were covered by collective bargaining agreements? In addition, why had trade union membership half between 1979 and 1997? And why this happened for me was simple politics. 
It didn't happen by chance, which simultaneously means things could have been different and equally still can be. As the author John Steinbeck would write, thou mayest, there is a choice. And for me, the genesis of this whole story in relation to the previous statistics that I mentioned can be traced to the experiences of the 1974-79 Labour government. So for me, we still really need to understand what went wrong and why, and equally, what went right and why during this period of government. And what characterised that Labour government was our social contract process that was initiated by trade union and labour leaders in 1971 through a mechanism called the Liaison Committee, which had the TUC as the primary channel. And the dominant discourse which would blame the trade union movement for the subsequent winter of discontent and the associated industrial unrest in 1978-79 obscures for me the programme's wider legislative achievements and also the achievements in terms of process. In fact, I would contend, as I do in the book, Helen, that the Labour government was equally or more culpable for the winter of discontent due to their strategic errors. And I think this is really important for us to consider because the wider social contract became increasingly defined as an incomes policy. There was a failure to hold an anticipated autumn 1978 general election. And there was a fourth year of pay restraint with a 5% pay limit, which was politically and industrially infeasible by that point. In fact, the government's own pay target was fatally undermined by a BBC Workers' Pay Award in the December of 78 of 16.5%, three times above the government's own target. Now, I'm not trying to reinvent history and to suggest Labour still wouldn't have been defeated and that the social contract hadn't run its course at that juncture, perhaps. But what I think we do need to fully consider and think through is that could the scale and the extent of the industrial unrest have been minimised if the Labour government and trade unions had taken different strategic steps? And if we, if we accept this as a proposition, which I do, then perhaps the neoliberal revolution that was to follow could have been averted. Maybe not. But the point is to learn the lessons of the past for the future. However, as we know, by the early years of the next decade, the concept of a social contract was stigmatised. And trade unions, until the present day, have been delegitimised in many quarters. This is in contrast with our European counterparts, whereby trade unions are still valued as an economic partner in the management of the economy. And whereby in Nordic market economies and continental market economies, trade union density and collective bargaining coverage has remained relatively stable and static, in fact, in contrast to the experiences of the UK. Now, as we know, in response to repeated electoral defeats, trade unions gradually accommodated the demands of successive Labour leaders, particularly in the sphere of employment relations and internal party reform. So by the point that Labour came to power in 1997, 
the role of trade unions had been dramatically reduced. Now, this is not a new story per se, but what I think is a new story in the book is that it charts a more informed picture and a truer depiction of the underlying political, institutional and relational dynamics amongst trade union leaders and labour leaders themselves. So the book details the complex matrix of interests influencing the emergent national minimum wage in 1998 and the Employment Relations Act in 1999. The book sets out how trade union leaders alongside various Labour ministers like Ian McCartney were battling to strengthen the legislative frameworks while others, yes, including trade union leaders, worked to undermine it. Again, like the 1970s social contract, forms of coordination, mechanisms and process were vitally important to maximising pressure. So in these chapters of the book, it details the compromises, the failures and also the successes. And the book in particular focuses on the contestation over the size of the workplace bargaining units eligible for trade union recognition, the so-called 20 plus one rule, which subsequently omitted 8 million workers from the right to, to trade union recognition and over the rate and scope of the national minimum wage. Now, despite the criticisms of these frameworks, of which I would contend there are many, they do until the present day set the benchmark. In many respects, they can be considered some of the more enduring aspects of the Labour government's achievements from 1997 to 2010. Now, critics would contend, of course, that they've remained intact because they are so weak. However, this is an analysis I don't, I don't fully share because they do provide a platform to build upon once Labour hopefully returns to power. But the book also sets out after these pieces of legislation and the aftermath of Labour's first term, a growing resentment and discontent among trade union leaders and their respective memberships at the minimalist employment relations agenda. And this helped fuel successive leadership changes in the largest trade unions who adopted a new approach, an adversarial approach, increasingly focused on the levers within the Labour Party in order to maximise pressure. And this was the result of the largest trade unions at that point called the Big Four. In the first instance, informally, agreeing to common strategy and common policy positions, and thereafter deciding what mechanisms could be reconfigured in order to leverage power. Now, this approach also fostered concerns amongst the TUC leadership and in other quarters of the labour movement, as I outline in the book, in that they were being marginalised in favour of a more concentrated power dynamic and also a narrower policy agenda. However, the new strategy did contribute to legislative success in the Warwick Agreement, which Ian McCartney was central to. For example, that Warwick Agreement in 2004 contained the Employment Relations Act, which extended protection for workers taking industrial action from eight to 12 weeks. 
the extension of two-tier workforce protection for all public services, the implementation of the Agency Workers Directive. However, much criticism was to follow the speed and the extent of the implementation of the Warwick Agreement, as I discuss in the book, and the fact that the Warwick Agreement was not delivered in full as the Labour government said it would do. So in this transition to a low trade union density and collective bargaining coverage environment, I believe the attitudes towards political action have not correspondingly changed as much as they should have done. And this is what I've tried to set out in the book. The method of legal enactment, as it was described by Sydney and Beatrice Webb, even culturally within trade unions today, is seen as secondary and subsidiary to collective bargaining. But what I think the book sets out is that trade unions actually achieved far more change to the employment relations model through political action strategies, particularly for the private sector, than collective bargaining did in the post-1997 period. So it's in this context why I need to point out, and hopefully others will agree, and maybe some will disagree, that in this context, we really need to fully think through the array of strategic options available to trade unions today at this very critical point. Because if we do not, then I fear, as someone who's passionate about trade unionism and works for a trade union, that we will be increasingly marginalised to areas of the public sector and to small pockets in the private sector. These matters are vitally important in an area of relative trade union weakness and for us to consider how this works in tandem with a new gig platform shared economy where advanced automation and robotics are increasingly coming to companies and the economy at large and dare i need dare i say we need to think about this in the post-covid environment whereby self-employment home working smaller workplaces will become more numerous in the norm and where larger workplaces often unionized will be the primary targets for advanced technological change. So to help us do this, I've presented a new analytical framework for helping us think through how we can try and capture and understand trade union strategy, influence and power, with a view to this framework helping us to develop policy making and legislation for when Labour is back in power. And I'm just going to try and share with you just now that framework, which I believe is very helpful in terms of us understanding the different processes, strategies, mechanisms, and policy of influence for trade unions during the different legislative events that I've analysed. And you can see how this differs, for example, from the social contract, where there was a, what I have called a co collective cooperative approach amongst trade unions, but importantly had the TUC as the primary channel of influence, with the liaison committee as the vehicle for that policy-making process. And how this contrasts, for example, with the Warwick Agreement, whereby the dominant process had become more informal, more adversarial involving the trade unions vis-a-vis -vis the Labour government, and whereby the Labour Party had become the primary channel of influence. So 
hopefully everybody can see that framework, which I believe still is applicable and relevant to the Corbyn era and with the new leadership involving Keir Starmer, of course. And I think that framework is going to be very important going forward in terms of how do the trade unions in partnership with the Labour leadership develop a new approach, develop new mechanisms. So going forward, it'll be interesting to see the trade union's response and indeed Keir Starmer's response to how we can develop a more integrated and inclusive policy-making process. It'll be interesting for me to see going forward whether the TUC leadership is reintegrated into informal and formal processes in an era of stronger Labour Party mechanisms. And if it is, could we and should we see a liaison committee mechanism re-emerge, which would include the whole trade union movement like the 1970s? Could such an approach foster a new social contract programme for the future economy, which debunks the historical negativity associated with the term in contrast with our European partners? So to end, Helen, and everybody who's listening for my first contribution tonight, the ability of trade unions to influence the employment relations model is increasingly tied to political action strategies. But in this, I do really believe there is hope and that we aren't on an endless and necessarily trajectory of eternal gloom. So making the correct strategic choices, making the right political choices will be absolutely central going forward. How we can develop enabling processes, channels and mechanisms will be of central and critical importance to the relevance and I would argue the survival of trade unions going forward. So for me these are the big questions which we urgently need to think through, have a conversation about and begin to answer if we are to embark upon a project of trade union restoration and renewal in our country. And I hope that the book informs part of that conversation as indeed the webinar does tonight. So thank you very much for listening to my opening remarks, everyone. Well, thank you very much for that, Andrew. That was a, sure that's got a lot of people thinking. And now, as was described at the beginning, it's going to be over to two key speakers. Firstly, Tom, and, and then to Ian. So, Tom Wilson, can you, over to you. Thanks, Helen, and um, thanks, Andrew. Uh, and, and, and the first thing to say is what a really interesting uh, read it was, and, and how, um, how carefully you've kind of charted all the ins and outs through those three or four key periods in, in trade union history. And, Certainly it rang so many bells with me um, from my brief period at Walworth Road when I was too low, 86 to 88. Um, and in those days, it was just, you know, a, a, me in an office. There was no kind of committee or much structure behind it. Um, but certainly a lot of the things that you talk about were very, very much to the fore during that period. And so much of it um, rang bells with me. Particularly, I think your emphasis on the key issue of unity versus disunity and the way in which that plays out on the one hand. And then the, um, 
the, the issue really about uh, leadership itself, you know, the importance of different kinds of leadership and the strength of the leadership and what leadership really means uh, within the union movement, the TUC and the Labour Party. So those two things uh, were absolutely key. But there's a third thing, and it struck me as, as quite interesting uh, that in all your 26 interviews, it didn't really emerge all that terribly strongly. And this third element is the strength of the base within unions and the strength of their kind of political reach down to their membership. And hence, of course, the legitimacy of the unions uh, having, a, having a political voice with Labour. And um, to give a small example of that, in the latest leadership election for Kia, only 35% of the 218,000 affiliated members actually voted. So the turnout was much lower in that category than the other categories. And of course, the you know, 218,000 affiliated members, it's, it's a big number, but it's quite a small number when you set it against the combined membership of the 12 unions that are affiliated to Labour. So there's obviously an issue there about how much uh, investment unions need to put into building that political base back up to where it was. Um, and it's striking, it came through very clearly in your book, how in, in fact the emphasis was really much more on high-level discussions um, and, and how those should be structured and, and conducted and the key leadership choices that the uh, leaders made about, about which issues to prioritise. So that's, that's the first point really, and it's, uh, it's interesting I think, it's almost like the dog that didn't bark throughout the whole of that period. So I thought your book brought that out very clearly. Second point, I've only got three points, uh, and Helen do tell me if I'm talking too much. <laughs> but the second point really was that it was uh, very striking that all 26 people you interviewed was a man. Um, now that's, that's not necessarily a criticism, that's a reflection of the kind of leadership that was around at the time. But I wonder if that gives rise to a certain kind of style of politics. Uh, and Lewis Minkin in his book, The Contentious Alliance, he, he refers to this too, and you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't use these terms, but, you know, very crudely, people talk about a kind of labour machine or a trade union machine and a certain kind of style of politics, which, whether it's informal or whether it's formal, um, it lends itself to a way of doing things which, you know, prioritises certain kinds of relationships. You know, you have, you have to be kind of, as, as John Edmonds put it, you were either Tony Blair's pal and went round to his house and had dinner, or you were certainly not if you then didn't... didn't um, follow the kind of Blairite line. So I think that was interesting too, and quite, quite why that takes you, I'm not entirely sure, but, but it is striking that um, looking back on it, it was such a kind of male environment. And then the third point really is, is your discussion of the Warwick Agreement, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I mean, I was at the TUC at the time, and I remember uh, you know, hearing it firsthand from Brendan when he came back, how, how it felt. Um, and you quite rightly bring out the importance of Tulo by that time, having, having become a much stronger, bigger organisation, very much led by the big four, uh, well-organised, a much more unified set of messages, and as you rightly say, therefore able to win some progress, make, make some moves, which alas were then not followed through fully afterwards, as you've just said. But I do just wonder, um, you know, th there was a price to be paid for that. And I'm, I'm rather with, with, with Brendan and John Monks and some of the others, including Ray Collins, who said that the the difficulty with Tulo emerging as the main mechanism, or if you like, the big four behind Tulo, was that effectively it excludes the TUC and it excludes all the unions that are not affiliated. And as Brendan says, and you quote him in the interview, for example, the education unions, which are very by and large not, not affiliated, of course, 
you know, if they're, if they're not there at the table, it gives the impression that the trade unions don't really care that much about education, which is very much not the case. Certainly not the case when you think about union learning reps and that whole agenda, which is proving so crucial and important and was in some ways the quid pro quo for some of the um, discussions at, at Warwick and before. So I just wonder what your advice would be to Kia. On the one hand, you, you have a very strong unified position if you go through Tulo. On the other hand, you have a much wider position if you go through the TUC. But then the TUC has the problem that it's difficult for it to treat all, all the unions around the table equally if 12 of them have got a particularly strong relationship with Labour. So that, that's a real problem. So which way do you think Keir should go? What, what are the lessons of history for Keir? I'll leave it there, Helen, if that's all right. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. And now, without further ado, over to Ian McCartney before we, we begin the general discussion. Ian. Uh, thanks, Helen. And good evening to all comrades and brothers and sisters listening in. Look forward to their contribution. Uh, a health warning. I've not been on the front line of trade union Labour Party activity for the last decade or so. And so I, I, I wouldn't want to I give comment in a way it suggests I am. I have got my opinions. Some of that might come out tonight. But firstly, uh, the, the work done by Andrew, I, I thought was to the point of where we could have done in 2019 used it as a backdrop, a piece to start putting to place a network for government. Uh, and I say that's my experience, I'm not going to talk about what I thought was working, what wasn't in that sense. But a lot of the time taken by myself and others like John Monks and others uh, were, hello? Anne? Hello? Hello. Hello. We can hear you. We can't see you. We can hear you. Yeah, I don't know what's happened with the, the pictures, but oh, the, the, carry on. Talking. We can hear you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it a great deal of our time was in real time trying to put together and stitch together a process of making sure that the treasury uh, number ten and some of the very strong ministers uh, in the Home Office and places, that uh, what we wanted to achieve in terms of the issues, instead of making sure we put into place uh, the implementation strategy, we spent two thirds of our time arguing the point, despite the fact it was policy, to get to the point of implementation. And secondly, a learning lesson for both future Labour government and the trade union movement is to have a strategy of implementation and linking it to a strategy around uh, bringing into the trade union movement non-trade unionists, people who would join, but for all sorts of reasons don't. Exam classic example of that uh, was in fact the introduction of some of the European legislation, the early introduction. Uh, there was no strategy to take that out and sell it. Uh, the key issues, and as a consequence of that, the trade union movement got very little out of the benefits of showing it the influence decisions in the workplace on behalf of, of, of workers. And secondly, I, I do agree with Tom and others about, uh, I've always thought that 
it was a strategic mistake and continues to be so to undermine the TUC's role with Labour leadership and in particular with the new leadership. And I think it's about, I think it's time now to learn the lessons of ensuring that the TUC has a very effective role. And it's not just about trade unions and pay affiliation fees. The whole public sector uh, uh, has got trade union memberships in the areas that a Labour government have to make policy in and then to implement it, whether it's in education, uh, whether it's in uh, certain sectors of the healthcare system, in local government. There's a huge number of roles that non-affiliated trade unions, for historical reasons, need to be involved, need to be consulted, need to take part in the discussions. And secondly, I, I think also in terms of this, Chulo, I was joint chair of Chulo for a quite a considerable period. And it became very frustrating in the end because it was clear meetings were being held before and after the Chulo meeting. And it became an agenda not for investing in campaigning between the Labour Party and its affiliate unions, but as a policy forum. Uh, as a policy forum, it couldn't work. It wasn't designed for that. And secondly, many of the trade union leaders, uh, not because they hadn't, uh, didn't, interested in Chulot, they had a lot, of, a lot of work on. And so it was not necessarily decision makers that came to these meetings. And as a consequence of that, uh, it became very frustrating. And quite a lot of people in government uh, took little or no notice to what Chulo said in that respect, uh, but still wanted to listen to the TUC and to support as far as they could TUC positions in terms of a whole range of issues. And I think that's important going forward, that the TUC role is critical. When you see the role they've played in COVID and in other issues in the run-up to COVID, there is, this is absolutely essential that the TUC is given a, not given, has a meaningful role in the developing public policy uh, with the Labour Party and indeed without the Labour Party on occasions. But I think that's critically important. I think also, uh, from my perspective, the lessons learned uh, from uh, the Blair and Brown years in terms of policy, a lot of it, uh, a bit like when people are made redundant, a company loses uh, a lot of its intellectual stock, its intellectual knowledge. And that's what the Labour Party happened to the Labour Party after 2010. Uh, a lot of its intellectual stock and intellectual activity disappeared. Uh, lots of it disappeared, not voluntarily, but it disappeared because there was a new, uh, new brimming charge, as it were. And it's important in the maintaining some of the really good policies we had, that there is a continuity in terms of the intellectual case for these policies. And secondly, again, in this policy, I keep saying secondly, I apologise, it must be the 15th point, uh, that when we're in the discussions, say, for example, on the minimum wage, here's a classic example of allowing the Conservatives, in other words, one, to try and claim the minimum wage their own, but then try to claim a living wage, which is in reality, <laughs> there's no such thing, it's a minimum wage, it's just a different name. 
but as a consequence of that, the Labour movement and the Labour Party have been unable to put as strong a case as it should be doing for an improved national minimum wage and a new form of low pay commission. And I'll finish on this point. Uh, the low pay commission and the minimum wage for myself, the lesson, the biggest lesson I learned was that miscalculated, this is me about me, I miscalculated the churn there would be in the labour market. My expectation would be with new employment opportunities that uh, low paid workers would move up the market with training uh, and other assistance. But in reality, the vast majority of people who are in low pay are trapped in low pay. And as a consequence of that, the, the minimum wage isn't a step up, it's simply a mechanism to give them some maintenance and reality of uh, working in low paid employment. And that, that means in low paid employment, the state still has a role to play in terms of making its contribution to low paid workers to sustain them in the labour market in an effective way. And that's one of the roles that I would look at in a new and extended low pay commission and its role in education and training with employers to put hand in hand minimum wages alongside the promotion and development of skills. So thanks for listening. Well, thank you, Ian. And now it's time for questions and contributions. Um, I already have one raised hand from John Edmonds. So John Edmonds, can we hear your question, please? Can we hear John's question? You will. Jolly good. John, who you were also a key player at the time, obviously. Well, uh, the first part of this time, not the later period, I wasn't part of the, uh, the Gang of Four, but my contribution was about why the Gang of Four developed okay. and why the uh, disillusionment with uh, discussions through the TUC and through TULO uh, came to such a point when a number of key players just vacated TULO uh, frankly, and did their own thing. Uh, the problem with discussions with the government, and the problem for the government, I'm sure, as well as for the trade unions, is that agreements have to be delivered. If this arrangement is going to be sold to union members, it has to produce something. And one of the great frustrations of what uh, Ian has just described as the uh, Blair and Brown years, uh, well, 90% Blair, uh, was that these decisions which were made were made sometimes with enormous difficulty, even on matters like the minimum wage, where we thought that the, uh, uh, the matter was already settled. Uh, it was policy. So it was a question, as Ian has made clear, of implementation. But the difficulties were there. But also, in respect of many of the uh, policies that were coming out of the European Union, the uh, reluctance of the government to implement them, and to implement them, if they had to, in a very minimalist way. All of this, of course, leads to uh, a search for a way which was more direct, uh, more powerful, and as Ian and Tom have both said, and Andrew certainly makes this point very clearly in the book, uh, in many ways it was a disintegration 
of trade union power because the price paid for those aggressive, uh, I suppose, advances uh, was that, um, first of all, uh, they caused about a good deal of ill, Ill will in the uh, trade union and labor movement. But secondly, the goodies weren't delivered. Warwick wasn't delivered. So the success was not achieved, but the, uh, if I may say so, the coalition that might achieve success in the future was severely fractured. But a government, if has to learn a few lessons out of this as well, and that is that if it is going to make agreements with the trade union movement, perhaps it ought to deliver them, because otherwise the trade union leadership look foolish in their own eyes and, of course, in the eyes of their members. Sure. I'll put a question mark in there somewhere, but I can't find which sentence to put it after. But uh, it was a comment, of course. Thank you for that, John. Um, also, Adrian Williamson has a question, I believe. But oh, can I just remind people that if you want to, to make a contribution, raise a question, can you just press the raised hand image so that I know that you want to? Thank you. Over to you, Adrian. I think I, should, I think I shouldn't have worn this shirt if I was going to be on screen, so I apologise for that. Um, my, my, my question was just in, in the historical context, if we think back to the 1970s, for example, the unions had a much stronger position in the private sector than they do now, and the economy was very differently structured in the sense there were much more manufacturing jobs and fewer jobs in the service sector, and that all, all of that meant it was easier for the unions to exercise political influence. And my question is, how do the unions get back into the private sector and how do they get into the, back into the services sector, which I would suggest would be the necessary sort of launch pad for the uh, sort of political influence that Andrew was talking about in his, his presentation. Does anyone have any thoughts? Would any of the panelists like to uh, chip in on that or can we have another question from somebody? Yes, I'm, I'm happy to try and answer that. I think this is why I said, Adrian, that political action strategies are central to the sort of restoration of trade union influence because the reality is that particularly in the private sector whereby trade unionism is currently at 13.5% and even that 13.5% is concentrated in areas such as manufacturing, the reality is, without the support of the state, trade unions have great difficulty in having the ability, one, to access workers. Some of that's a, an overhang from the Employment Relations Act, which I referred to earlier, but also because they lack the institutional resources and power to get into some of those areas of the economy. And that's why trying to recreate and foster policies that sectorally look at areas of the economy is, for me, the most effective way of trying to achieve that. And that's probably why, as I point out in the book, when they talked about the implementation of sectoral bargaining, why it perhaps it never happened, because people realised the potential for trade unions being able to increase their influence within areas of the economy because what it was supposed to do that facilitates sectoral collective bargaining 
So for me, that's why developing political strategies and policies which can gain public support, and I think this is what Ian's referring to in the preparatory work in 1997, is developing policies which can, can command public support whereby you know, we can have some form of renewal of trade unionism through political strategy and policy making. Because the reality is, trade unions have been trying to do this for 30 years. We're seeing what's going on in the care sector, for example, at the moment, and trying to have influence there is so difficult because of some of the institutional barriers that are in place because of the law. And the primary way that we're going to address that is by developing a policy and a narrative which can also command public support that can address some of the things that you're talking about. That's why for me, political action in many respects is more important than collective bargaining because we need that first in order to restore collective bargaining. Thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, Michael Gold has a question. Michael, over to you. Um, I think Michael, I don't know, it seems to be a bit of, oh, Michael, I can see you up there. Can, can you hear can, can, can you hear me? Michael, yes, I can hear you now, yes. we can now, we couldn't before, so. I, I, no, I'm a bit confused. The screen looks very different from what it normally does when I do a Zoom okay. meeting. Anyway, Wait, can, you, can you hear me? That's the main point. We can point. hear you, which is Thank awesome. you very much, Helen. Yeah. Can't right. see you, unfortunately, but hey. Well, you're probably not missing much. Um, <laughs> And at least I'm not wearing a garish shirt like some of the panelists. Um, okay, uh, you, you, the, the thing that's missing from the discussion so far is the international context. Mm. Uh, the, the crisis that faces the trade unions is not a UK crisis. It's one that faces all the OECD countries. And one of the questions that we need to consider is the changes in employment structure since the 1970s. Um, the the part-time work, um, agency work, fixed-term contracts, uh, the role of outsourcing, all these issues haven't just affected the UK, they've affected all the industrialised countries where there is a similar decline in trade union numbers. Now, the difference between the UK on the one hand and, say, for example, Germany and France on the other, is that France and Germany have legal structures that, that guarantee works council's rights. And so, you, for example, in Germany, any organisation with over five employees can have a works council. And you find that the vast majority of works councillors and certainly chairs of works councils are trade union members. They wouldn't be there without the works council's legislation in the first place. So the reason why German uh, you know, at shop floor level, the German unions have retained much greater strength through information, consultation, determination, is because the legal structure is so different. Now, the big irony for me in this discussion is that in 2002, we had the Information and Consultation of Employees Directive that actually allowed the UK to have works councils and none of the union, well, with one or two honourable exceptions, um, the, the unions simply did not take up the chance to organize works councils and to me this was a serious mistake because they at the time they were worried about the single channel of representation but the fact is a, a, a works council actually allows you to organize amongst non-union members it actually gives you a platform for putting your points of view across your policies and so on so you know to, to me this was a terrible mistake that that the the uk trade unions made um again with honorable exceptions and that's really my comments so my comment really is one employment structure that we have to bear in mind 
international aspects of the employment structures. It wasn't just Thatcher putting the boot into unions. Yes, of course she did, but there was more going on besides that. And the second one is that the support we could have got from the European Union through this particular directive, we just ignored. So that's my comments. Thank you. And anyone want to respond? Anybody want to respond to that? Do we have another question? Yes. From Sarah. Well, maybe Sarah speak and then responses to both comments. Okay. Thank, thanks very much, Helen. Can you hear me all right? Can you hear yep. you fine? Yep. yep. I, I feel almost honour bound to contribute because I think apart from you, Helen, I'm the first woman to speak at this. And I very much took Tom's point actually to heart about the fact that the whole protracted business around negotiating with the Labour government on things like the minimum wage, national minimum wage and the uh, Employment Relations Act, especially the trade union recognition schedule. Um, I think I was probably the only woman in the room for most of those very heavy going meetings where we argued and argued and argued about the minutiae of the trade union recognition scheme. And it was, I, I really enjoyed myself, but it was, I have to say, sometimes testosterone laden. And I'm not sure that that necessarily always allowed the kind of subtlety of outcome that might have served the movement a bit better here and there. Sorry, I couldn't really quite, couldn't quite resist that point. Um, I, <laughs> it was it's just very nostalgic, this for me, because I remember those days so well, and I've met Ian a few times, probably long forgotten yeah. me, because it was a long time no, ago. No, I've not forgotten you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to see you looking so well. I just, yeah. a couple of other very <laughs> Not you. <laughs> Although I do remember you eating, you throwing one of your beta blocker tablets at David Lee, That's who right. ate it, and it made no detectable difference to his uh, <laughs> enthusiasm. It didn't kill him. <laughs> Enough of that. But the two serious points, one just very briefly. One was, I think, again, um, I think it was the point that Ian made just now about how brilliantly the TUC has been doing during this COVID-19 crisis and just before that. And I think the reason for that to me is very much that they've gone right back to industrial issues. And I think that's where the public really does respect and accept the trade unions as the people who know how to do a risk assessment that the workforce can trust. Um, and if I were the TUC and I were working with the labour movement, I would say this is really what we're about. And I think over the last few years, I think, well, we had the left lurch in the Labour Party. Um, I just think certainly my children who have sort of grown up and in the workforce got a little bit fed up with certain trade union leaders constantly popping up on the television and talking about party politics. And they couldn't quite marry that with what they might need from a trade union in the workplace. And indeed, one of them only joined a union when she ended up working in a company where there was a union recognised. And she said, well, that's the first time I've been asked. And now I can see what they can do for me. And I'm happy to talk about politics as long as it's within a kind of industrial context. So I think these points are super important. And there's a really big chance here for new Labour leadership and for Francis and the TUC to merge some new sort of dynamic, uh, you know, she's already proposed it, I know, so people will have seen all that. My final quick point was about works councils. I remember in the recognition, uh, the representation at work task group, which John Edmonds, I think, is very much a key part of and lots of others. Uh, we tried and tried and tried to get rung three of your voice at work to go out there and get some sort of traction in the union movement. Rung three uh, was exactly about works councils um, and consultation on issues in the workplace, but it wasn't the same as individual representation or the nirvana for the trade union movement, which was recognition. And it was just kind of tossed aside, and I absolutely agree with Michael, that we really did in the trade union movement miss a big trick there, and hopefully something of that sort could be revived in the UK, especially now that we've left the EU and our purchase on 
um, you know, regulation making in that form is going to be very much diminished. Thank you. Thanks for that, Sarah. Do any of the panellists have any responses to that and the earlier points made by Michael? Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got, no, you've got it, Ian. Okay, it's actually to uh, build upon the point that Sarah made and Tom referred to earlier, and this is why I think that process is really, really important here and why there's a new opportunity uh, with a new leadership in place under Keir Starmer and, of course, how we respond to a post-COVID environment. And it's absolutely correct that the principal interviewees were all male and that is a, a representation uh, of the structure of trade unions uh, by and large. However, what I would really like to point out is that this is why the social contract experience for me is really, really important. And I think why we need to remind ourselves of its successes from 1971 to 1978 in terms of process and outcomes, because what was very, very important to people like Jack Jones and Hugh Scanlon at that time was to have as wide a body of people as possible involved in developing legislation with the Labour government. So that's why the process was really important for me and why broadening it beyond the largest trade unions uh, to encompass the TUC to have a more central role in the way that it used to do, like in the social contract experience is so important because with that comes new opportunities in terms of reaching different workplaces and different workers. So that's why I think the lessons of the social contract are really, really important and still resonate today and why we need to look at it and how we can develop processes and mechanisms that encompass the whole trade union movement at the moment? Mm. Uh, well, uh, again, I'd, I'd very much echo Sarah's points about the, um, the fantastic way that the TUC has emerged precisely, you know, big credit to Francis's leadership too, but precisely because it's picked up those kind of bread and butter industrial issues, risk assessments and so on, and, and how exactly furlough is going to work and what, 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 what does it really mean in terms of people's employment contracts and pay and so on. All of that is exactly what people want from the unions and TUC has done it very well. And, and uh, just yesterday we saw uh, the TUC launch its post-COVID recovery plan alongside uh, Annalise Dodds from the Labour Party. So I think, to answer my own question, it seems that Keir has already decided that he's going to be working with the TUC, not at the exclusion of Tulo, far from it. But I think that's quite right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good strategic judgment. But to, but to come back to uh, Andrew's main point just now, absolutely right, the process is crucially important, and so is leadership. But I would come back to my third leg, if you like, the, the point I made right at the beginning, which it's equally important in that um, analysis to include uh, an investment in the union's own political operation, building their own capacity to work in a political way. And, and what that really means is operating in a way which is much less of the old machine politics, much less macho, much more transparent, much more family friendly, much clearer about what politics really means in unions. And if you look at the success of the political fund ballots, I think it's really striking how successful they have been at um, reinforcing the case for unions, any union having a political voice. But they did that not by talking about the link with Labour, they explicitly didn't talk about that, but by pointing out the need, exactly as Andrew says, to have a, a decent legal framework within which unions can then operate. 
So um, I, th I think one of the key lessons of this whole period for unions and for Labour is, is to rebuild right from the grassroots upwards a, a, a different and much more transparent and modern, if you like, conception of what politics is all about. Yeah, can I agree with the issue of our uh, political fund ballots? Uh, uh, I'll hold my hand up and admit the unions never ever raised it at all, not even once uh, in the Warwick Agreement discussions, Warwick 1. I don't know about Warwick 2, wasn't there. The, but I, I personally, if they'd asked, I wouldn't have conceded it because I thought the political fund ballots, although they were designed to cripple trade unions, it made them realise the need to communicate with their membership on issues that needed political decisions to represent their interests. I think all of the, ba the ballots have shown that to be the case. The issue now for me is that the unions, uh, particularly some of the big unions, need to engage with their members in a more effective way. Uh, for example, uh, during the leadership election, my union tonight phoned me twice, asked me how I'd voted. I said, what's it to do with you? How did you vote? And that's how I happily told them. Uh, but uh, the point I was making is that that wasn't the role of the union, nor was it the role of the union to take decisions about that ballot and not come to members. And so there is a, a, an extensive curve for unions to improve their communications with their members. And secondly, for me, it's impossible for the unions to recruit thousands and thousands of new officers as professional full-time officers. And it's about training, educating, giving this, providing skills and support to rank and file members. And I don't mean just rank and file members that put their hand up when so-and-so wants elected to something. I'm talking about them managing the union's resources on the ground uh, and being the kind of voice for the union when workforces. Thank you for that, Ian. Uh, we're really coming quite close to the end now, so it's really time for closing comments from people. Um, so, first, to Andrew. Well, to conclude, I just want to thank everybody for joining tonight and for your contributions. And I think conversations like this are vitally important because I think we're at a, a critical juncture in how we go forward in terms of the reconfiguration of the economy. And in sync with that, of course, we've got a new leadership under Keir Starmer. And as other panellists have pointed out, the TUC have really came to the fore during this COVID crisis. So for me, what I think is vitally important in order to ensure the relevance of trade unionism going forward is that collectively we have these conversations, which my book is designed to do, is to help facilitate that process about what kind of policy process do we want in place? Who's involved in that policy discussion? What are the most effective mechanisms for giving birth to policies which can command public support? And all these things are integrated. And I think we really do have an opportunity to go back to the drawing board in the context of a post-COVID economy and a new leadership under Keir Starmer about how we can develop a new way of doing things, a more effective way that can command not only the support of trade unionists, but crucially, 
the support of the public going forward if Labour is to return to power. And I think all these things are integrated and we really need to think through together what are the strategic options available to us in order to maximise trade union influence in the country and to help Labour gain power again. Thank you, Andrew. Um, well, thank you, Andrew, Ian and Tom, and all participants, of course, for a lively uh, and informative debate. I think we all know that there's lots to think about, lots to achieve in these challenging times ahead. So thank you all very much. <laughs>